Charles Booth tells a story of a young man who went to visit the National Museum of Art. While he was there looking at the different paintings and artifacts of that nature, one painting in particular arrested his attention. So he stood there for a great while just staring at this painting. The title of it was Checkmate. He stared at this painting for what seemed like one, two, three, four hours. Security guard on duty was walking past, seeing this young man, and of course he wondered to himself, this is strange, what in the world is he looking at so intensely? The man kept on staring, kept on looking at this painting. About five minutes before the gallery was about to close, the security guard heard the young man scream, it's a lie. Security guard rushed over to him and said, what are you talking about? Why are you so loud? What's going on? He said, it's a lie. You see, I play chess, played many games, and I've been staring at this chessboard. And what I have discovered is, it's a lie. It's not checkmate. He's still got one more move. (laughs) Brothers and sisters, I'd like to let you know today that if you're under the sound of my voice, And you're alive and well, no matter what hell you've gone through this week, no matter what issues you have in the workplace or in your life, if you're alive today, you've still got one more move. Still got opportunity to praise the Lord, pray to him and ask him for deliverance for whatever you're going through. I told a congregation back home the other day I had the privilege and opportunity to travel to Israel in the Holy Land. And on Friday evening, I traveled to the Western Wall, where the Jews considered that place very sacred and very holy, and where they pray and read the scriptures. But don't you know, on that Friday evening, as the sun began to set in the sky, they weren't just sitting there reading the scriptures, and they weren't just sitting there praying. I watched them, brothers and sisters, as they grabbed hands and began to dance as the Sabbath day began even the orthodox ones. Believe it or not, I danced with them because they were happy to celebrate the coming of God, that God would dare spend any amount of his time with us on earth. So they were happy. I feel we ought to be celebrating today. Not for me, I'm not important, but the fact that Christ has died for us, giving us one more opportunity to get it right. Well, Glenville, I'm happy to be here. The truth is, I uh, had the opportunity to travel to this church while Myron was here um, a while back before I knew I was coming here. And I was sitting here. Actually, I sat right there over there in the corner and I was watching the service as it went on. I was with you, Sister Moore. I think you remember. I came with Nathaniel Lyles, one of your former pastors. And I said, man, this is a very nice church. And lo and behold, Myron grabbed me one day at camp meeting and said, uh, did you know that Freddie said, you know, we're going to be together? And I was like, no, I didn't know. Which church are you at again? He said, Glenville. I said, wow. So praise the Lord. This was a divine act of God, I guess, for me to be here. And the truth is, I'm happy to be here. I'm not happy because of the accolades and kudos that have been thrown your way for being one of the best churches in the conference. I'm not happy to be here because you are considered the mother church in the conference. I'm happy to be here because I sensed the love of this church before I even got here. I'm grateful for your pastor, Pastor Myron Edmonds. Amen. Someone that I admire and I look up to already. Uh, We have become very close friends. Truth is, I've been kind of sneaking around this place, sneaking around Cleveland because, you know, he wouldn't let me come to church and he wouldn't let me fellowship with you until this day. But uh, here we are. And Myron has... Myron, Myron has mentioned, uh, Pastor Edmonds has mentioned that we're going to be like Batman and Robin and Jordan and Pippin. And of course, my first question was, well, who's going to be Jordan? Because uh, what, 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 what are we going to do? We, we'll, we'll figure that out in time. We'll figure that out. Thank you, Orlando. Thank you so much. It was Orlando when I first came here who drove me around the city and uh, showed me some places to live, tried to help me find housing. Uh, He definitely knows this area well. And thank you so much for the gifts. Uh, This is the first time in my life I've received gifts, uh, so many gifts, without having done anything yet. Uh, But let me allay your fears and allay your concerns. 
I'm a good southern gentleman, and so I work for my money. I have a good work ethic, and I don't mind working for you. And you can be assured that as I'm here at this church, uh, there is nothing that you could ask me to do if it is in keeping with God's word. And I have the resources to do it. I will do it. Amen. Thank you. Thank you so for the gifts. As you know, we're in the uh, 44 Fruit series, um, studying the Holy Spirit and being productive through the Spirit. If you are concerned about that, you may go to Scripture and find out that, that what we are saying is exactly what is found in Scripture. All three members of the Godhead want us to produce fruit. Amen? God says in the book of Genesis, be ye fruitful and multiply. Jesus says, if you abide in me, you will bear much fruit. And even the Holy Spirit, when he is invited into our lives, brings the fruit of the Spirit. Amen. I'm grateful to be in this 40 for Fruit. I've had a good time on the prayer line with all of you talking and discussing and just praying. And many times you don't know because you couldn't see me on the phone. I was actually preaching in my PJs eight o'clock in the morning standing up preaching to you, and I felt like we were having prayer meeting on the line every single morning. Well, no, you just didn't come to hear me. You came to hear a word from the Lord. Amen? Amen. Will you turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 3? Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. Truth is, and Pastor Edmonds knows this, this is not really the message I wanted to preach today. As I read it and God led me to it, I text Myron and I said, Myron, I think this is it, man. Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. <clears throat> Allow me to read in your hearing, but please follow along. Say amen when you have it. Amen. amen. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, repent. What did I say? For the kingdom of Judah, kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, the voice of one crying in the wilderness Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Now John himself was clothed in camel's hair and a leather girdle around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem, all of Judea, and all the region around Jordan went out to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Therefore, therefore, get this, bear fruits worthy of repentance. And do not think to say to yourselves, We have Abraham. As our father, for I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Verse 11, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fan, my Lord, is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. I don't preach long, so I want to speak to you briefly on the subject, fruits and roots. Fruits and roots. Shall we pray? Merciful Father, if I have offended thee in any way, 
Forgive me now. I ask God that you would hide me behind the cross. Nothing else is more important than your word. I ask God that as we study this text and as we study this scriptural passage, we may be led to understand what you desire of us. Teach us truths that are pertinent for salvation. Help us along the way. Guide us and lead us, God. Even rebuke us if you have to. Father, when it's all said and done, let nobody remember the messenger. Not even so much the message, but the master that is in the message. Help us, God. Bless us. And if you never do another thing, save us into your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. Most people believe that Paul was the greatest preacher in the New Testament. But I believe today there was no preacher quite like John the Baptist. His fashion sense alone separates him from everybody else in his time period. The Bible says he never wore a suit. He did not wear the traditional religious garb of the day. The brother only wore a leather girdle and camel's hair. His diet was questionable at best, as he only ate locusts and wild honey. His dwelling was less than favorable as well. John lived in the wilderness by himself with no friends and companions to call on. And John preached one message And one topic his entire pastoral career. (laughs) Repent and be baptized, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John did not sugarcoat anything. The boy preached so hard and so straight, people in the audience listening to him would be slain in the spirit. And cut deep to their hearts. It was almost as if John was speaking directly to them. Now I'd like to say that people in the audience were saying, tell it like it is, John. That's nothing but the naked truth preacher. Preach the word. But the truth is, I want to believe that there wasn't much shouting going on during John's preaching. John told the naked truth with no clothes on. (laughs) And when he preached the truth in power, people were shaken deep to their core and convicted that their lives were not right before God. John didn't look for kudos and accolades at the end of service at the door. Didn't have time for that. In the power of the Spirit, John was preaching fire and brimstone. In fact, I don't even believe, Pastor, that he was preaching according to the standard homiletical rubric. Don't believe John had a soft introduction to ease the audience into his message. I doubt it if he took time to try and break down every word in the Greek and the Hebrew. I don't believe there was a nice sounding B3 Hammond there in the Jordan River with him to soften the mood of the people or a beautifully singing praise team to lift his spirits before he started preaching. John just preached the word. No illustrations. No stories. He did not preach. It's your best life now. He did not preach anything close to a prosperity message, or sowing a seed. Just the plain, unadulterated truth of God. No, I don't believe there was much shouting going on during John's preaching. In fact, today I would be very likely inclined to agree with Bishop G.E. Patterson, who said that there are some messages that it would almost be a sin for people to shout on. Some messages, brothers and sisters, at the time of God's appointing, offer such scathing rebukes and such burning truth that people ought not shout, but instead take a look at themselves. In the light of God's word, 
and wonder, am I right before the Lord? Am I doing what is necessary to be saved? Sister White puts it this way. She says, God does not send messengers to flatter the sinner. Hmm. He delivers no message of peace to lull the unsanctified into a false sense of security. But he lays heavy burdens upon the conscience of the wrongdoer and pierces the soul with arrows of conviction. Hmm. I love Ellen. And it is not until the penitent person is bowed low before God and asks the question, God, what must I do to be saved? That God sticks his hand deep down into their lives and brings them up into the newness of life. Well, such were the messages that John was preaching. Bible says that where people were coming from near and from far to the Jordan River and they would be repenting of their sins. There was something about John's preaching that even the unchurched and the unsanctified recognized the voice of God. John was not selling prayer cloths. Wasn't selling any oil from the Holy Land. Brother wasn't even healing people. He was just letting the Holy Spirit speak through him. And maybe, brothers and sisters, we ought not stray too far from John's model. When it comes to our witness, maybe we shouldn't have to coerce and trick people with fanciful promises into the faith. (laughs) Because if we have to trick people, then our religion is false anyway. We should rely on the word of God, change people's hearts and their minds, not our own schemes, not our programs, the living, active word of God. I don't know about you, but I still believe in the word of God. In fact, my Bible tells me that God's word is living and active and sharper than any two edged sword to the dividing of joints and marrow. And it is a discerner of thoughts and intentions. Bible says that the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God lasts forever. It's power in the word. What the world needs now is not the genius of our homiletics or not the defense of our doctrines. People need the word. They need the word. And in fact, I believe they're screaming for it. People want to know what's happening in the world. People want to know prophecy and what's going to happen in the last days. People don't know what happens after they die. They want answers to the problems of life. Believe me, they want the word. With all the people in the world that are scrambling after self-help books and watching Dr. Phil and Oprah religiously, People need the word. I have seen grown men, including myself, reduced to tears because of the word. I have seen myself strongholds broken and standards of the devil completely torn down just by the claiming of God's word. And I am not without experience in my own life. In fact, I remember when I was younger, I really wanted nothing to do with God or the church. And when my father came to me and told me, son, I think you would make a great preacher. I almost looked at him and laughed because it did not seem appealing to me to see a grown man on a pulpit yelling at everybody else. (laughs) Brothers and sisters, I kid you not. It was not until I went into my room. And read the Bible for myself that I was convicted. Wasn't any clever story from a preacher. Wasn't any illustrations that he could give me. In my room with my word and the Holy Spirit, God convicted me. When I read the story of Jesus, wisdom of his words and the power with which he manifested the love of God. When I read certain texts that said he was wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. 
The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. I was convicted by the word. I believe we ought to get back to the word. There was a time when they called us people of the book. Don't know what they call us now. It's the word that will save people. It's the word that will speak to their hearts. Deep calls to deep. God's people have to get back to lifting up his word as we lift up Jesus. Everything we do must be rooted in God's word or we will not produce good fruit. We, like John the Baptist, are forerunners in these last days. And if we individually and collectively are not rooted in God's word and saturated with his spirit, we need not concern ourselves with producing fruit. Because good fruit comes from good roots. John said, you know what? I'm not interested in anything else but the word. Whatever I hear God saying, that's what I'm going to preach. I want to let you know this morning that John was actually the first preacher prophet in the New Testament. Up until this point, God had not spoken through anyone in 400 years. And it's interesting, brothers and sisters, that after 400 years of silence, God's first words to his people is repent. (laughs) (laughs) To understand why he preached this way, maybe we ought to understand the time period. It was about this time that Jesus was about to come to the Jordan River and be baptized and begin his public ministry. And John had been chosen by God to call out his people so that they would be ready to accept Jesus. Paul says that when Jesus came to earth, it was the fullness of time. What was it? (laughs) The fullness of time, meaning it was the right time. And Sister White adds on that God's timing knows no haste and no delay. Everything that God does, whenever he decides to move, whenever he gets up and stands up and moves in our lives, it's always the right time. Never too early, never too late. It's just the right time. Paul says that when Jesus came, oh, it was the fullness of time. Well, why do you say that, preacher? Well, there are many historical facts that lead us to this conclusion. The Roman government controlled almost all of the nations roundabout, so most of the nations were under one government. Mostly everyone spoke the same language, so everybody could communicate. Most of the roads were connected, which meant that after Jesus healed people and after he rose from the dead, it made it easier for the gospel to go out to other parts of the world. It just makes sense. But more than that, The word fullness comes from the word pleroma. Say pleroma. Meaning to be filled up like a cup that is overflowing. And during this time, I need you to get this, brothers and sisters. God's people had been so stagnant in their faith and so steeped in legalism of the scribes and Pharisees that they had almost obliterated the gospel of grace, mercy, love, and freedom that Christ came to set up. She says, Sister White that is, that the priests in the temple had lost the significance of the service that they were performing. In fact, it was so bad, they were more like actors in a play. The ordinances which God himself had set up and appointed were now the means of blinding and hardening the heart. God could do no more through his people at this time. She says the pastors weren't even preaching the truth anymore. They were just preaching what they wanted to preach. The religious rulers of the day were giving people false means of salvation and the fruit of God's people was not salvation and not grace. It was just legalism. 
she says that Christ was sitting in heaven. The son of God saw how men had become the victims of satanic cruelty. In other words, the earth had become so morally depraved that more and more people, their human bodies were becoming the habitation of demons. People did not know where to turn for their spiritual needs. They had heard no word from the Lord in 400 years. They were like sheep without a shepherd. Moral degeneracy had reached an all-time high. Mankind could not endure any longer without Christ stepping in. He had to come at that time. You can be sure, brothers and sisters, that when this generation reaches its pleroma moment, when depravity and sin is at its fullest point and mankind can no more endure, Christ will burst through the clouds and he will come and get his people. But the word for today is just as it was in the time right before Jesus. God sent John to preach repentance and baptism. And you know, with no regard for feelings, this is a bad boy. With no regard for feelings, sermon after sermon, John was calling people to lay down their sins and get ready for the coming of Jesus. And it's funny because the text seems to imply that not only were they repenting of their sins, but they were confessing their sins openly. Oh, y'all didn't hear me. I long for the day. We can come into the church and be transparent folk. Don't have to act like we're perfect and we got everything together. My Bible tells me that all have sinned. There's nobody righteous. Not one. They were confessing their sins openly. Pastor John, I'm a sinner and I want to be saved. Pastor John, I'm a liar. I'm a thief. I'm a white collar crook. Can you do anything for me? Pastor John, I'm an adulterer. I need help. Pastor John, I'm a murderer and a drug addict. I don't I know I can't take back what I've done, but can you do anything for me? Yes. I want to be saved. John would take them and bury their sins beneath a watery grave and lift them back up into the newness of life. Oh, thank you, Jesus. So John was rebuking people so that they could get their lives in order. Notice, brothers and sisters, John is not preaching to some heathen nation or some pagan people. He is not speaking to people that are outside of the commonwealth of Israel or who have no concept of God. He is in Judea, Jewtown, where everybody's supposed to know God. He's preaching to God's own people. The Bible goes so far as to say that he even rebukes the religious elite of the day, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. My Lord, these were the people that most of the people looked up to. The Pharisees were the most vocal and influential sect of the day. They were orthodox and conservative legalists, and they had 600 laws or so on top of the law that God gave just to keep people in line. Sadducees were the wealthy aristocrats of the day. They were extremely self-sufficient to the point of denying God's involvement in everyday life. They denied the resurrection of the dead. They denied any afterlife. They denied the existence of a spiritual world that included angels and demons. And the Bible says that on this day in the text, a group of Pharisees and Sadducees came to the part of the Jordan River where John was baptizing. Sister White mentions that many of the scribes and Pharisees had come to John on many occasions confessing their sins and seeking baptism. But she said that John was not impressed, but in fact, he was impressed by the Holy Spirit that many of these men had no real deep-seated, deeply rooted conviction of sin. 
They just thought the Messiah was coming to restore Israel. So they thought that if they got baptized, they would find favor with Jesus and strengthen their influence on the people. Most of them only got baptized because they knew John would be close with the coming Messiah and they did not want to be left out. So John, under the unction of the Holy Spirit that day, calls them out and he says to them, you brood of vipers. As we say back home, you snakes in the grass. (laughs) Who warned you of the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruit that is worthy of repentance. Now, the truth is, I struggled with this text for a while. And then God laid it on me. (laughs) The fruit that God wants us to bear can only come from repentance, brothers and sisters. John was saying, let your life prove that you have had a change of heart. In other words, where is the evidence of your salvation? I was even rebuked by this text because many times I find myself claiming to be a Christian and then breaking the third commandment. Third commandment says that we ought not take the name of the Lord in vain. And if I call myself a Christian, a follower of Christ, and I'm not living up to what I have said, and if the fruits And if my fruits and my words and my actions and my deeds are not in harmony with him, then I am taking his name in vain. Y'all ain't with me today. The truth is, if I'm taking his name in vain and living a double life, then I've got a root problem. The word says that God will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. If we call ourselves Christians and we are not producing love and joy and peace and temperance and meekness, which are the fruits of the spirit, then we have a root problem. Preaching too hard. And if we are Christians by day and devils at the stroke of midnight, I say we have a root problem. Don't have love one for another, Daniel. We have a root problem. If we are not surrendered to God, we got a deep-seated root problem. The Bible tells me that a tree is known by its fruit. The nature of the tree will determine what it produces. We have to ask ourselves, what are we producing? John said, brothers... The axe is now at the root of the trees. And every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I didn't want to preach this. I didn't. The Pharisees and the Sadducees were legalistic, self-righteous, ill-motivated, position-seeking imposters. They were doing everything to give a form of godliness, oh, but denying the power thereof. They were doing everything in their power to look sincere in their baptism. They were not concerned with what Christ wanted to do. They just wanted to use him to get what they wanted. They were not bearing fruit that comes from the root of repentance. Their their fruit was more laws and strict obedience and more methods and more programs. But at the end of the day, they had not given their hearts to God to lead them where they should go. Nobody figured this out. Nobody really likes it anymore when you use that word repent. Don't like it. Because truth is, it sounds so harsh, sounds so pointed. Preacher, why are you coming down on us? But little do we understand. That the word simply means to change our minds and agree with God. That's all it means. The word has this connotation. That you're walking a certain pathway in life. 
And God comes to you and says, brother, you are headed in the wrong direction. If you don't turn around now, you're going to get lost. And then we look around in our surroundings. We see the dark pit of sin that we are in. And we say, you know what, God? You're right. And we turn around and make a 180 and go the other way. That's repentance. It's just agreeing with God. But John was saying, brothers, your fruits don't agree with God. In fact, they make him sick to his stomach. You are legalistic and you're self-righteous and your hearts are filled with selfish motives and desires. You are not rooted in Christ. If you were rooted in Christ, you would bring forth fruit that is worthy of repentance. Brothers and sisters, as we approach the last days and the coming of our Lord, God convicted me that we as his people and he as our God, we have to be one in agreement. Am I right about it? The only way we're going to be in agreement with God is if we plead the baptism of the Holy Spirit. His work in these last days is so important. Many of us have no idea how vitally important the Spirit's work is. His work is so important that if we miss out on what he is trying to do, we will be out of harmony with God, even as his church. Notice I said what he wants to do. We have so many programs and methods and rules and regulations. But at the end of the day, brothers and sisters, we truly have to ask ourselves the question, have we pleaded the Holy Spirit enough that we can say that we are on one accord with God? Are we doing what God wants us to do right now in the world? Can we truly say as individuals that we are producing the fruit in the world that God wants us to produce? We always talk about revival, and restoration, and reformation, but we will have none of them if we as the people of God don't agree with God. It won't happen. We must learn to agree with God, get on the same page with him. Get rid of our agenda and our personal vendettas. Let God drive this thing because we cannot drive it. We ought not even be in the passenger seat or in the back seat telling God where to go. We ought to be in the trunk and let God drive. Question we ought to be asking is, what does God want from me and my life? John said, Brothers, bring forth fruits that at least agree with God. Understand this, brothers and sisters. All of us are producing fruit. No question about that. All of us are producing fruit. But some of our fruit just does not agree with God. Look at verse 10, Matthew 3. I'm almost done. Verse 10. And even now, the axe is laid to the root, to the what? Of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Now notice this. Notice he does not say every tree that does not bear fruit. He says trees that do not bear fruit good fruit. Because the fact is, all of us are trees. And all of us are bearing fruit. The only question is, what kind of fruit are we bearing? Well, the Bible tells us in Galatians 6, 7 through 8, be not deceived. God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he reapeth. Sold to the spirit, you will reap of the spirit. But if we sow to the flesh, we will reap corruption. We have roots that are deep in our own devising sometimes and our own inclinations that it ultimately leads us to become unhealthy trees, which in turn produces bad fruit. 
Or, brothers and sisters, we can have roots so deep in God's will and so watered with his word and so saturated with his spirit that we become healthy trees. And then it is inevitable that we will produce good fruit, that fruit that God wants us to produce and that fruit that agrees with him. Well, we have to be careful, brothers and sisters, that we don't become like the Pharisees and the Sadducees. People who are more desirous to use God than to serve God. John said, brothers, listen up to me for a second. This is serious. The axe is now at the root of the trees. We are living in the last days. Would you agree? I know we say that a lot and sometimes it becomes very cliche, but would you agree with me if I tell you that time is short? The Bible says God's axe is already at the root of the trees, meaning his axe is already at the root of our souls. And when Christ comes, brother's not looking to come and play games. He is coming to destroy sin and save his people. God does not want to destroy us. But the fact of the matter is he has to destroy sin because sin cannot rise a second time. But if we stubbornly hold on to our sin, then we get burned up with it. Understand, brothers and sisters, that we to God are like precious trees that he has planted with his own hands. He has saved us and reconciled us. Christ has given us the opportunity to have eternal life with him. But I find in the parable of the fig tree that although we should be cut down, Christ tells the father, wait! Not yet! Wait! Give them more time! Let me fertilize them a little bit. Let me water them with my Holy Spirit. Let me help them. Wait, God. Christ is pleading for our salvation. And angels are holding back the winds of strife, lest they should blow on us. And time and time again, he waters us. Oh, God. (laughs) And time and time again, he fertilizes us. And time and time again, he prunes us. And he chastises us. And he allows us to go through storms to open our eyes. And he puts people in our lives that know God. And he's trying to make us what he created us to be. Oh, but we can be some stubborn trees. <laughs> Father used to tell me that the old folks back in the day, when a tree refused to produce fruit, they take a tree, a stick. Am I right, Daddy? And they beat the tree. That's southern conventional wisdom for you. <laughs> We can be stubborn. And one day, God will have to come. Oh, Lord. And clear out his vineyard. Go to Isaiah. I'm almost done. I'm almost done. Isaiah. This is it. Isaiah chapter 5. Isaiah chapter 5. Listen to what the prophet of God says. Now let me sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved regarding his vineyard. My well-beloved has a vineyard on a very fruitful hill. He dug it up and cleared out its stones. Jesus intervened in our lives and put distractions out of the way. And he planted it with the choicest vine. That vine, according to John 15, is Jesus Christ who died. He built a tower 
in its midst. If you know anything about vines, vines actually climb upward and they wrap around whatever. And so I believe this tower is the Holy Spirit. And also he made a wine press in it. So he expected it to bring forth good grapes. He did everything possible. So he expects that it should bring forth good fruit. But it brought forth wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge please between me and my vineyard. Look at this. What more could have been done to my vineyard? What more could Christ have done that I have not done in it? Why then, when I expected it to bring forth good grapes, did it bring forth wild grapes? Oh, Lord, have mercy. And now, please, tell me what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge and its protection. And it shall be burned and break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. I will lay it waste. Oh, God. It shall be pruned. It shall not be pruned or dug. But there shall come up briars and thorns. I will also command the clouds that they rain no more rain on it. God says, I've done everything. I have left heaven and died on the cross. There is no other God that would do that for us. There is no other religion that conceives of this type of God that would leave his throne (laughs) to die for sinners. It does not make sense. God says, what more could I have done? I've hedged it in. I've watered it. I've removed the stones. I've built a tower. Why did they bring forth wild grapes? I love that song. It says his truth is marching on. It has one verse that says he is trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. And sisters, I'm done. Everything necessary for our salvation has been done. And God loves us so much that he will wait time and time again for us to surrender our lives to him in true repentance. Does not the Bible say that he stands at the door? And he just knocks, wondering if we will answer. But the time is short now. John the Baptist says that the axe is in his hands. And in a little while, God will do what any good gardener would do. He will take his axe and lay it at the root and sever all ties. A Japanese brought forth a type of tree called the bonsai tree. You've heard of it. It's significant because this tree is so small. The fact is it's so small it's measured in inches rather than feet. But the interesting thing is how they cultivate the bonsai tree. A bonsai tree, as soon as it sticks its little sapling out of the ground, the gardener will grab that thing and uproot it out of the ground. Then it will tie off its main root and then some of its other little roots and then stick it back in the ground. And because that tree can't get the nutrients that it needs from the soil, it stunts its growth and it cannot grow anymore. And I believe, brothers and sisters, that Satan is trying to do the very same thing. Trying to tie us off at the root. Because at the end of the day, we are so focused sometimes on external and behavior modification that we forget that our roots 
need to be deep in Christ. And they must come from a heart that realizes I'm a sinner saved by grace. If it had not been for God's grace, I know exactly where I would be. Wandering down some pointless road to nowhere with my salvation up to me. God is saying today, my axe is at the root. And I'm coming to make up my jewels. But for right now, he says, come. Is there anybody like that today? I can't leave without making some type of appeal. I don't know about you, brothers and sisters, but I've known for a very long time that I have not been producing the fruit that God wants me to. He has given me no excuse not to bring good fruit into this world. He has given me no reason that people cannot see Christ in me. Take one from you, Pastor. Charles Spurgeon says, has Jesus died on the cross just to make a weak and vacillating and fruitless Christian? God has made us to be fruitful trees, to represent him well in the world. The Bible says he's done everything in his power. He wants us to be cultivated. He wants the fruit of our labors to be cultivated. He wants us to have eternal life with him. And so I got to give somebody the opportunity. Every head is bowed. Every eye is closed. Nobody look around. Don't look at anybody else. It's not about anybody else. It's about you and your life. You have to ask yourself today, are you bringing forth fruit that is worthy of repentance? Oh, God, forgive me. Anybody like that? Just raise your hand, come to the front, don't wait. Give your life to Christ right now. The axe is at the root. God bless you, brother. Somebody else. Axe is at the root. Don't be a stubborn tree today.